Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Well, good morning and welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you are with us this morning. If you're with us for the first time or maybe the first time in a while, if you've been traveling this fall, we are in part three of a series called The Good Work. And in it, we're walking through a book of the Bible. It's not something that we always do. Sometimes we preach topically, but we thought this was a story that maybe many of us aren't familiar with or have forgotten over time, but it's one that has an incredible amount of relevance, not just for us as a church, but for each of us individually. And this story kind of follows along a man that the book is named after, and his name is Nehemiah. And really what we've been talking about the last two weeks is kind of all of the setup for this story. And we're finally going to get to some tension and some good stuff Because sometimes with Bible stories, they go along and everything's happy and everything's good and nothing really goes wrong. And then we teach about it and we send you out into the world and we're like, go and do. And you're like, but that's not what my life looked like. My life's like a lot messier and more difficult than the Bible stories that you share. So if you ever feel that way about Bible stories, today's a good day because we get introduced to to the antagonist and like there's finally some conflict in this story of Nehemiah. Now, this whole story of Nehemiah is built around this idea that Nehemiah feels this deep conviction to go do a work in the world. Nehemiah was a servant to the Persian king Artaxerxes. And while he was there, he heard word about his homeland and the people who were living in his homeland back in Jerusalem. And he heard that their city had been destroyed, which he was familiar with, and that they the city was still in shambles. The walls were destroyed. And because of that, the city didn't have any security. It didn't have any protection. It wasn't able to establish itself as like a prominent city once again, because frankly, the walls are destroyed. And anytime the walls are destroyed, it's hard to gain footing and traction, at least in first century Middle East. So Nehemiah hears this and he's deeply convicted. It says that He sits down and weeps over the news that Jerusalem has been destroyed and that the walls are still in ruin and that the people are struggling. And so in that moment, Nehemiah feels convicted to go and do something about it. And what I think is so relatable to Nehemiah's story for us is there's probably something in all of our lives that we feel convicted about. It may not be on a grand scale like Nehemiah's. It may not be that we need to travel back to some city and help rebuild the city. It might be smaller, but the conviction is still equally as strong. Maybe your kid's been struggling in school and you're like, enough. We're making a change. We're getting involved and enrolled in a new school. I'm tired of watching my kid come home frustrated, defeated, and embarrassed because this school isn't working for them. I'm convicted to do something about my child's education, to help them gain a better foothold, to feel more confident, to feel more successful in life. Maybe that's what your conviction's about. Maybe it's for, you know, the way that you see your current business going. You say, I'm tired of watching us kind of flounder around. We've got to change course. We've got to do something bold so that we can be successful. Or maybe it's in your marriage and you look around and you say, this isn't what we agreed to. 
This isn't the promise that we made to each other, but I'm not willing to give up on this and I wanna fight for it. For each of us, there is some to fight, some good work that we're engaged in or we will soon be engaged in. And that's why the story of Nehemiah, I think is so relevant for us because there are these leadership principles, there are these life principles that we can use that can help us navigate what we do. Now, like any work that we do or any project that you undertake or any effort that you engage in in the world, eventually you come to resistance. You come to some sort of opposition. Life is not always up and to the right. We all know this. Maybe it's been with your health. Maybe things have kind of been touch and go and you've been struggling and finally you're able to experience some breakthrough. And then right as you start to have a little bit of peace about the way that your health is going, boom, you get another health prognosis and it's bad. There's always opposition that we experience in our life. And so today what I want to look at is how Nehemiah handles this, how he navigates the bumps and the resistance and the turbulence that he experiences as he's trying to engage in rebuilding these walls of Jerusalem, as he's engaged in doing this good work in the world. So let's jump in to the fourth chapter of Nehemiah. And if you've been reading along with us, if you're engaged in the reading plan or if you're about to engage in the reading plan because you just heard about it and you want to fill some time during the sermon and sign up for it while I'm preaching, that's fine. Go for that. But this is about where we are in the reading plan. And so you kind of know all of the things that you need to know. And if you weren't here and you haven't been reading, I've just kind of caught you up. So don't feel bad about not doing the reading plan. Just go ahead and sign up now. Shameless plug. Chapter four, here we go. Verse one, when Sanballat, that's a good name. If you're expecting and you're searching for names, <laughs> it won't be taken, I promise. <laughs> you could have a unique child. Sanballat, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he became angry and raged. Now the reason Samballot was angry and raged that Nehemiah and the Jews were rebuilding the wall is because Samballot was the governor of a neighboring state called Samaria, a neighboring country and tribe. And it was, it was counter to the interests of Samballot for Jerusalem to rebuild itself and become a prominent player in kind of the geopolitical world at the time. They liked the fact that Jerusalem was weakened. It was better for them, their commerce, their trade, for all the things that they wanted to do. Sam Ballot loved that one of his neighbors was struggling. And so when he hears that Nehemiah and the Jews are rebuilding the wall, he understands what that's gonna mean for his own country and for his own people. There's gonna be less opportunity, less expansion, less development, less economic success, because he's now gotta contend with a reinvigorated Jerusalem. So he's upset, he becomes angry, and he rages at this. I can't believe they're doing this, ah! And so he mocks the Jews. He begins to make fun of them. And he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? This word feeble literally means like a wilted flower. It's kind of like a, a shot at their, like their masculinity, these feeble Jews. He goes on and he says, will they restore things themselves? You gotta kinda read the tone into it. <laughs> will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? 
Will they revive the stones from the pile? You get the point. I'm going to stop the voice. From the piles of rubble, even though they are burned. This is kind of like, like your mama jokes, but for a wall. That's kind of what he's doing right now. He's like, your wall's so weak. That's what ha- is happening. So Sam Ballot's holding court. He's got an audience. And he's throwing out these jokes at the expense of the Jews and their efforts to rebuild the wall. And then, just like what happens when a bunch of kids get together and pick on another kid, one of the weaker kids chimes in. is like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in on that too. And so Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was beside him, added, if even a fox climbs on whatever they build, their wall of stone will crumble. And everybody's like, oh, he said if a fox climbed on your wall. <laughs> Jokes have gotten better in the last 2,000 years, <laughs> fortunately for us. Maybe that was like a really bad insult back then. I don't know. I'm just reading the scripture. But this is what happens. And so they begin to criticize Nehemiah's efforts. They begin to criticize the work that the Jews are doing. And this presents Nehemiah with a choice. Just like when we are engaged in a work and we experience criticism, we're presented with a choice. You can either ignore the criticism and keep about the work that you're engaged in, or you can listen. And the reality about most of the criticism that we experience, and particularly for Nehemiah that he experiences, and the criticism that's most harmful and dangerous is the one that's based on truth. If we go back and we look at what Nehemiah says, he doesn't say anything that's not actually based in some form of reality. The group of Jews that were rebuilding these walls, none of them were skilled masons or carpenters. They were like people who refined gold and created jewelry and they were perfumers. It was, this was not a very like masculine construction-based society at the time. They had softer skills. They were emotional. They engaged in listening well. This is not the type of people that you want rebuilding walls. And so when when Sam Ballot criticizes the Jews, the criticism is pretty valid. He's like, listen, you don't know what you're doing. You don't have any experience in the work that you're engaged in. This isn't going to work. And if you do rebuild it, it's just going to fall over because you're not any good at doing what it is that you're doing. Typically, when we find ourselves experiencing criticism, The criticism that's hardest to overcome is the ones that feel most true. The ones that make us doubt our integrity, that make us doubt and question our conviction about whether or not we should actually be engaged in this. They cause us to question the reality of what we hope to achieve. When we were starting this church a couple of years ago, uh, it was not without criticism. There was a large group of people who didn't want to see a new church on this property. Some of it was neighbors, and some of them were particularly um, loud in their criticisms. We had to make some hard decisions when we were thinking about what this new church would become and some decisions about what we would and wouldn't do. And one of those decisions was to close a successful preschool that was here on property. And there was a petition that went around saying that that was bad and how could a church who's supposed to love people and care about children close a preschool? That was really hard. And it wouldn't have been hard if their criticisms were unfounded. It was hard because they had a point. 
And so there was a lot of soul searching in those moments, thinking about, well, are we doing the right thing? Is this the best plan going forward? Is, are they right? Maybe, maybe we shouldn't do it this way. Maybe we should leave this open. And what I, what I learned and what we find in Nehemiah is that the more time that you spend refuting the critics, the more time that you spend engaging in rebuttal or defending yourself against their attacks, the more you validate it, the more energy that you give to it, and the less energy you have to do the work that you're supposed to do. But Nehemiah, fortunately for us, is a lot smarter and wiser than I am. And so he doesn't do that. He hears this criticism. He feels this criticism. He hears the words and the mocking tone that these people are using about the fact that this wall is not going to withstand a fox jumping on it. And so here's what he does in response. And this is what we should do in response anytime that we face criticism. He goes straight to prayer. Now, for some of us, prayer is something uh, that we feel like we have to be really careful with the words that we use. We have to make sure that these would all be appropriate language. This would all be words that we'd be comfortable with young children hearing. We'd want our grandmothers to hear our prayers. These are, this is typically how we think about prayer. They have to be very polite and cor correct. This is not the type of prayer that Nehemiah prays. So for some of you, if you've had a hesitation to pray because you can't use the language that you use normally or with your buddies, you should maybe read Nehemiah. He says, listen, God, we are despised. Turn their insults to us back on their heads and make them like plunder in a captive land. I would imagine that if we lived in a time period where cities were often ransacked and there was plunder taken from them, this would feel harsher than it feels now. It's kind of like... I Make them feel like plunder in a captive land. Okay, I don't really get that. But God, don't protect them. Don't help them. Don't do anything. Let everything bad in the world happen to them, God. Don't forgive their iniquity. Don't blot out their sins from your sight. They have thrown insults at the builders. God, let all the bad stuff happen to them. You know what? Just get them out of the way. Take them out, God. Because... They're getting in our way from the progress that you have called us to make. This is a bold and strong prayer and one that maybe some of us have wanted to pray before. God, I am tired of dealing with these people. Every turn we make, they fight me on this. God, will you just, whoop, just lightning bolt, well-aimed lightning bolt, just take these people out, God. Like I'm trying to do what you've called me to do. Help me out here. Because what Nehemiah knows in this moment is that he's not building this wall by himself. And I think what happens to us when we're engaged in the work that we do, when we feel convicted and called about making a difference in the world or in the life of someone we love and care about, it gets most difficult when we feel like we're doing it by ourselves. That was true for me in the beginning stages of building this church. The criticism's coming in from all sides. You feel attacked. You start to doubt yourself. You feel uncertain and insecure about whether or not you know what you're doing and 
then you realize you don't know what you're doing and so you become even more insecure and you start to believe all the things that people say. And the more time you spend in that place, the less time you have to remember that you are not doing this by yourself. The times that I'm most overwhelmed leading this church is when I forget that God's actually leading. And the same is true for your lives. This is what we see in Nehemiah's story. This is the lesson that we can learn from this moment. All these insults come, all this criticism comes to Nehemiah. He ignores it, he doesn't respond, and he goes straight to prayer. And as soon as the prayer is finished, this is the very next sentence in scripture. We continue to build the wall. Criticism, criticism, criticism. God, we can't do this by ourselves. I'm gonna need you to handle them. I got a wall to build. Let's get back to building the wall. And so they did. And all of it was joined together and it reached half of its intended height because the people were eager to work. And the reason they were eager to work is they realized they weren't working alone. They didn't have to mess or deal with all of the criticism and all of the insults and all of the resistance and opposition that they were experiencing because they knew that they had a God who was working in their midst. But of course, anytime criticism doesn't work, your opponents will turn up the dial. And this is what happens. When Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the work on the walls was progressing and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. If we can't control the narrative about them to dissuade them from completing the work, then we're going to have to start messing up the work. We're going to have to get involved. And so they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. My guess is you have some people in your life who like to stir up a little bit of trouble. Every time you feel like you're making progress, here they come again, kicking sand in your face, getting in the way, creating more obstacles for you to navigate. This is what happens to Nehemiah. So what does he do again? Nehemiah is a smart man. But we pray to our God. And this is the most important word in this whole story. Because I think this is the lesson that we can most learn from Nehemiah today. We prayed to our God and we changed our plan. We prayed to our God, God handle all this nonsense and let's revise the plan and figure out a better way to go knowing the information that we've just received. They're gonna come and try to attack us Stir up trouble. All right, God, handle them. But in the meantime, we're going to get ready. We're going to lawyer up. We're going to store up. We're going to save up. We're going to do whatever we need to do, God, to be prepared if they come. And so we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. But of course, life is not always up and to the right, so neither is the story of Nehemiah. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. This works too hard. Maybe we should stop. And there's so much rubble. Ugh, all the rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. This is a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. There are more challenges than we expected. We didn't really think this part through. Why isn't it just happening naturally? 
feels like we're manufacturing a lot of energy to get this done. Also, our enemies, they're still there. Before they know or see anything, this is what they were saying, we can be in their midst and start to kill them. We'll stop the work. The reality is there are forces in our lives that try to stop the good work that we need to do. Some of them are institutions. Some of them are groups of people. Some of them are individuals with names. But they come in different shapes and forms and sizes. But for each of us, there are forces who are trying to stop the work in your life. And sometimes it happens with the people that know you best or the people that you have been with that you're trying to move to a new stage or state to the people that you might be leaving behind as you try to continue to grow and develop and to build a different kind of life for yourself. It's like that phenomenon of crabs in the bucket. That's why you don't have to put a lid on a bucket full of crabs. For the people who are from Louisiana, that's right, right? Okay, this is what I'm told. Because as the crabs try to climb out, the other crabs grab them and pull them back down so you never have to close a bucket full of crabs. Have I explained this metaphor enough? Everybody's like, yeah, we understood it the first time. It's all right. Sometimes there are people like me who are slow. This is for y'all. But this is what happens to Nehemiah. There are crabs all around him who don't want to see him move to the next place. There are people in Nehemiah's life and in the lives of the Jews. We don't want to see you strong. We don't want to see you get into recovery. We don't, we don't want to see you stop drinking. Because then you wouldn't be around to hang out with us and it would make us confront the reality of our own choices. No, 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 you stay down here with us. That's not good for you. No, you don't need to get married. No, just keep hanging out with us so we can go out at night. No, 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 you don't need to settle down. Tie yourself down. Don't do that. No, you don't, you don't have to go to church, be with, hang out with other Christians. They're boring and dull. Hang out with us. You don't need to send your child to a different school. Just tell them to try harder. We all have crabs. Wait, that didn't come out right. <laughs> We're going to need to edit this in the video. I'm going to close in prayer and we're just going to go home because this got sideways real fast. <laughs> Y'all pray for me. Uh, there are people in our life trying to pull us down. That's what I meant. Moving on. Then the Jews who lived near them and came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now word is getting out that Sambalat and his armies are going to come and make a fuss. And they're going to make trouble for the Jews. So Nehemiah recognizes that he's done what he can by giving this over to God. But he realizes, this is that word and, and he created a new plan. So Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Literally, what ended up happening is Nehemiah recognized that he wasn't going to be able to control when they were attacked. But he also knew that they had to continue to do the work. So all around the wall, while work was being done, he had people with trowels slopping down mortar and laying bricks. 
And he also had people holding swords or machetes, whatever they had back then. And so at moments, you literally had people holding both doing the work. Swords hanging by their side as they continued the work. I don't know if we're going to need it. I don't know when we're going to need it. But we got it when, when we need to. And so some people were working, holding swords. Some people were just working, and some people next to them were holding the swords themselves. And so you had alternating sword trowel, sword, sword trowel. But Nehemiah knew that he had given it over to God, but that he needed to come up with a different plan to be ready for what happened when trouble came. But this isn't all that Nehemiah did. While people are holding weapons and people are continuing the work, Nehemiah has his William Wallace moment. He stands up and he gathers everybody around. He's got blue and white face paint on. And he's like, listen, don't be afraid of them. Riding back and forth on his horse. And then he says something really important, particularly for us today. Remember, this is not the first time that the Jews have heard the word remember. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, this word might be used more than any other word. Remember. 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 Why? Because we as people, particularly as people of faith, we're inclined to forget. What are we inclined to forget? That the Lord is great and awesome. And that we are not doing this work by ourselves. So he's kind of, everybody's starting to slow clap and he starts to build it up. And he's like, fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. And then they continue the work. But in the midst of all of the motivation and inspiration, Nehemiah shares this gold with us, this incredible truth that in the midst of our greatest opposition, when life seems most difficult, those are the moments that it's most important for us to remember that God is working with us and fighting for us. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the circumstances that we see, by the resistance and the trouble and the setbacks that we encounter, it happens over and over and over. And like most of us, we think that the way out is to just dig in deeper, try harder, and fight it ourselves. There might be some of that that's needed. But the most important thing that we can do is remember that we are not in this alone. And so it ends this way. Then our enemies heard that we had found out that God had spoiled their plans. We knew what they were up to. There's not going to be a surprise attack anymore. And so we all returned to doing our own work at the wall. But this is the last thing. And Nehemiah says to everybody, listen, they've laid off for now. But here's what we need to remember. The work is spread out and we are far apart from each other along the wall. When you hear the trumpet sound... Come and gather where we are, and our God will fight for us. This particular part of Nehemiah's story is one that you might experience this week, or in the coming months, 
or maybe in the coming years, when all of a sudden the work that you're engaged in, the good work that you're trying to do in your own life or in this world, you start to experience criticism. You start to feel the resistance and the turbulence of people, forces at work in your life, not wanting you to move forward. And what we see from Nehemiah and his example is the first thing that he does is he asks God to step in and intervene. And then he comes up with a plan in case that doesn't happen. But the one thing he does not do is he does not forget that God is working and God is fighting for us. And so as we kind of end this service and as I get ready to pray for us, that's what I hope that you'd leave and remember most. Whatever you're experiencing, even if you're not building anything right now, just as you go about your week and your life, even if it's something small, trying to navigate this next season, trying to get out of debt, working to rebuild that relationship. You're not building it by yourself. And our God is fighting for us. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for today, for these reminders that you are always at work in our world and that you are always fighting for us. God, we know that opposition and trouble will come. So help us to be ready. Help us to be quick to adjust our plans. And help us most to trust you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.